You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Good morning, church. Good to see you. Hope you are doing well. If we haven't met, my name is Clint. I'm one of the guys on staff, and I'm thankful that you are here with us this morning. If you have a Bible, will you turn to Acts chapter 2, the passage I just read? We are going to continue this morning our sermon series through this book of Acts. This is week five, and if you're new with us and you look down and you're like, five weeks, and this is as far as we've got? Yes, it is, okay? If you're a planner uh, in the room, you like to kind of know where we're going, uh, my plan is that it will take us three weeks to get through chapter two, uh, which is a one-week improvement uh, from a math wizards out there. Uh, but the Bible also says that, the, that man has a plan, but the Lord establishes his steps. So we'll see. Um, But this morning, we're gonna make it through about verse 11. If you've been a part of any of our gatherings before, you know that every single week, we end our time the same way, and that's on purpose, and we say what? Go and be the church, exactly. That's intentional, and it's birthed out of what we've seen so far, quite honestly, in the book of Acts, that the resurrected Jesus, before he ascends to heaven to take his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father, where he is, even now, the Bible says, ruling and reigning over every square inch of creation, before he ascends to heaven, the resurrected Jesus gathers his disciples and he says this, Acts 1 verse eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So, Jesus, who is the eternal son of God, he came to earth, he lived a life we could never live, he was crucified, meaning he died the death that we deserve to die, paying the penalty for our sin in full. And John, sorry, John 19 says that the last word that he speaks from the cross before he breathes his last and yields his spirit is a Greek word, tetelestai. It's a word, the English translation, translation you may have heard is, it is finished, The the word itself is an accounting term. It means paid in full. And so the Bible says that Jesus utters this this reality, paid in full, right before he breathes his last. And then Matthew 27 says that right after he does, there's this earthquake and the, the curtain in the temple, the veil that separated the presence of God from his people tears from top to bottom, signifying the, the, the penalty for our sin is absorbed. The wrath of God for our sin is absorbed by Jesus in his death in full. And then his lifeless body is taken down off the cross and placed in a tomb. And three days later, he rose again, forever securing victory over sin and death for you and me. Um, if you haven't been here before, that would have been a moment where somebody should go, amen. Forever securing for us victory over sin and death. And not only that, but securing for us new identity, belonging to the God of the universe as sons and daughters. And then Acts 1 says, before he ascends to heaven, he spends 40 days with his disciples, proving to them that he is alive, and not only does he give them a new identity, we just read it in Acts 1 verse 8, he gives them a new purpose. What's the purpose? To be his witnesses. You will receive power, and you will be my witnesses. This is what it means to be the church. 
that we are his witnesses. If you are a Christian, this is your identity. You belong to God because of what Jesus has accomplished for you. If you are a Christian, not only do you belong to God because of what Jesus has accomplished for you, your purpose in this world is to witness, to testify to Jesus with your life and your lips. It's your individual purpose and it's our purpose as a church. We exist to bear witness to Christ, who he is, what he's done, and to the great things that he's accomplished. That's what it means to be the church. And we say this at the end of every single one of our gatherings because what we want ringing in your ears as you leave here is you to be reminded that Jesus has accomplished for you what you could never accomplish for yourself. And you leave here, when you hear go and be the church, as a result of what Christ has done for you, you are fully, freely, and forever forgiven of all of your sin, past, present, and future. Because when you hear go be the church and you walk out of these doors and you're reminded of who Christ is and what he's done and what that means for you and you are convinced by the power of the spirit of God uh, of your new identity, then it's, it is that being convinced by the power of the spirit of God of your new identity is what fuels you, what will compel you then to go and live out this new purpose that God has given to you. Testifying to Jesus with your life and your lips. Um, toward the end of last year, I traded my truck, uh, and it was a sad day, it really was. The reason why I traded my truck is because my truck had five seats in it, and my family has six people in it, okay? And I came up with a theory, uh, because at the time my wife was driving this van, and it wasn't that old, it actually had been faithful to us, but it, <laughs> that was weird to say. Um, it, it began to make some noises, where you go, that's about to cost us some money. You ever been there before? You hear some things, you're like, ah, oh, I just don't feel right about this, okay? So I came up with this theory that if we had two vehicles instead of one that we could all fit in, then when we would go somewhere, we wouldn't have to always drive that car. Um, and so just like uh, if you're a runner, I'm not, so I, I've only heard this from others, but apparently if you buy two pairs of running shoes at the same time and you rotate them, those two pairs of shoes would last you longer than if you just have one until it's done and one until you rotate it, okay? That was my theory about these cars. So trade in the, tr- I don't know if it works yet, we'll see, the jury's still out, right? Um, traded the truck in, and one thing I didn't consider um, in the criteria was like any of the options on the vehicles. My, my plan in this trade was I wanted to get, I'm brand loyal, so I wanted to get the, the, basically the, the SUV version of my truck, because I just need one more seat. Okay, I want the same year model if I can get it and as close to the mileage as I can get it without having to spend any US dollars to get it. You know what I mean? That was my goal. And so again, I didn't really consider the options, but as it turns out, I ended up with a vehicle that had some things that my truck didn't have. Sunroof, heated seats, cooled seats, DVD player, okay, heated steering wheel. And I'm not bragging, okay, this is just the illustration. It's just the way it worked out. Uh, Please don't covet, okay? And that's a sermon for a different day. In that moment, um, uh, or, or sorry, one morning in December, so I got this vehicle. One morning in December, I, uh, it's cold. And not like this morning cold, which y'all didn't experience it because it warmed up before you came here. But earlier, it was cold. And, and you wonder, do I need a jacket? Maybe, maybe not. Back in December, it was really cold. So like in the 20s, it was freezing. So I'm taking full advantage of these options. Taking the board of school, 7.45 in the morning, remote start. <clears throat> Perfect right? Ooh, we're going to get in there in a few minutes. It's going to be toasty, all right? And sure enough, we got in there. It was toasty to the point where I even had to turn the, uh, the steering wheel, heated steering wheel off because I was like, ooh, ha, too hot, you know? We were just praising God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. In that moment was the song of my heart, okay? I promise you this illustration has a point. Uh, I, 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 the car's already running, so I, I put the car in reverse, 
go to press the gas and the engine just goes, but the car didn't move. It's like, hmm. Well, surely what happened was I cranked the car up, but the button didn't engage it into, I don't even know how cars work, obviously, you know, Um, but it's not working. So maybe I'll just turn it off and try it again. So I turn it off, crank it up, cranks up, seat's warm, steering wheel's great, TV's on, the boys are happy, throw it in reverse, nothing. Transmission gone, okay? I've owned this vehicle for three total weeks and the transmission is completely shot. And, and in that moment, my song changed from the doxology to a psalm of lament. <laughs> psalm 13, perhaps. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? You know? Here's why I tell you that. You know what I didn't care about in that moment when the transmission was out in the driveway? Heated seats. Didn't care at all about the heated steering wheel. And, and because on a car, those are optional. And a transmission is not. Because the purpose of a vehicle is to get you somewhere. And and it doesn't matter how nice the options are if you're stuck in the driveway, right? Here's why I tell you that. One of the things that marked and will mark every single disciple of Jesus from his ascension until his return is that we are a sent people. We are a people of movement. We are commissioned by Jesus to be his witnesses. The way he says it in Matthew 28 is you go and you make what? Disciples of all nations. We are this people of movement. Church, this is our purpose. It's our purpose individually and it's our purpose together. And if we lose sight of this, this reality that we have been commissioned by Jesus to go and be his witnesses, it doesn't matter how many people show up on Sunday. If we lose sight of this, it doesn't matter how great the music is or how good our coffee is or or even how much money we have because if we lose sight of our purpose, then we will be just like my boys on that Monday morning, warm, right, and got a TV on but stuck in the driveway. And and that's not what we've been called to be. We are people who are commissioned to go. This is what he says in Acts 1-8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. He gives us a new purpose to be his witnesses, and he gives us a power to carry it out. That's what we're gonna see today in Acts chapter two. Here, here's the point that I want you to take away from this sermon. It's the spirit comes to live in us and to help us by declaring to us the power of the gospel. That is gonna be our outline this morning, those three parts, the spirit has come to live in us. The third person of the triune God of the universe is in you. He's given to you by the Father and the Son to help you by declaring to you the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse one. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. There's a couple things that you need to see in this one verse to understand what's happening here. We'll talk about the first one now and then the second one we're gonna come back to at the end. The first thing is what Luke means when he says the word they. He says they were all in one place. And so this isn't just the 12 disciples. If you've been here with us, you remember back in chapter one, verse 14 and 15, uh, it says that the company of those who who were there were 120. So there's 120 of them who are doing what Jesus said in Acts one, verse four. He says, I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to wait because the promise of the Father is gonna come. The Holy Spirit is coming. So you go and wait in Jerusalem. That's what they were doing. 120 of them are devoting themselves, it says, to prayer and they're waiting on Jesus to send the Spirit. Luke 24 says that they worshiped him continually in the temple. So it wasn't just they were just sitting and waiting. 
They were worshiping Jesus, waiting for him to send the spirit. And I want you to get this picture of this scene in your mind, okay? Because I, I think we have a tendency to read the Bible as like a newspaper, like it's just facts, and we miss out on the humanity of it, and these real people with real emotions and a, and a real God who is really working in their lives. So picture the scene here. Um, the Mount of Olives where Jesus ascends into heaven is a little over a half a mile from Jerusalem, and Jesus tells them, or before he ascends, he said, go back to Jerusalem. So after he ascends and after the angels show up and say, hey, why are you looking at heaven? What do they do? They walk to Jerusalem. And, and as they walked, I want you to picture them in your mind. They were pumped. They were pumped. Okay, so it's like this. I've been coaching my eight-year-old son's uh, basketball game. And um, they, uh, it's a rebuilding year for us. Okay. <laughs> We lost the first five games of the season, and then on our sixth game, we won, okay? It was the first game that we've won. It was a, a de real defensive battle. We won the game 10 to five, okay? <laughs> and as the clock hit zero in the fourth quarter, buzzer sounds off, these boys were hyped, okay? Like my son, particularly with this whole team behind him, he's sprinting towards me, runs, jumps, big fist pump, whoa! And I'm thinking, a little bit more of that, we'd have won a few more games, you know? <laughs> more of that jumping ability and energy, maybe we would have won. But that's how I picture this scene here. They're, they're walking back and they're going, can you believe what we just saw? Jesus carried into heaven, he's ascended, right? And, and then the angels are there and as they walk back, they start to remember all the things that Jesus said. He said that we, you and me, we get to be his witnesses. He said the spirit of God is gonna empower us and they're putting these pieces together and they're going, wait, didn't he say before he died in the upper room, he said that it, it is to our advantage that he go away because if he goes away, then the spirit's gonna come and they're putting all the pieces together. They're like, Jesus raised the Lazarus from the dead. Is it gonna be better than that? The, the water and the wine at the wedding of Canaan, it's gonna be better than that. The feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, all this stuff and this anticipation is building in them and so they get to the upper room and they're excited and they're praying and they're asking the Lord and saying, send it, Lord. Send the spirit, right? Send the spirit on us. Send your power and they're praying just fervently all this anticipation and what happens? Nothing, at least nothing of note. I mean, something must have happened, but Luke doesn't mention anything. Um, and so my, my guess is that at least a couple of them stayed up really late that night. Peter, James, and John, the night Jesus died, that he takes them to pray, and Jesus goes to pray, and he comes back, and he finds them asleep. And he's like, you couldn't even wait with me for one hour, right? And so they're remembering that in their heads, and they're going, you know what? This ain't happened to us again. He, he got us one time, but no, we're in this. We're not going to sleep until they, they're praying and praying and asking the Lord to send the Spirit, and then eventually they do. They fall asleep, nothing happens. Day comes and goes, day two comes and goes, and then somebody says, hey, he said before he ascended that the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, is gonna come not many days from now. And, he, and somebody says, you know what? It's gotta be the third day. Why would it be any other day? Jesus died, was crucified on the third day. He was resurrected. Surely today is the day. The Spirit is gonna come, and they're praying, and they're fervent, and there's anticipation, and then nothing. And maybe they're discouraged, right? Day four, day five, day six. And then somebody's like, well, maybe it's day seven. I don't know. I mean, that's the day of completion. And then nothing. We know that they wait 10 days because Pentecost means 50th. And it was a Jewish festival, a Jewish feast that took place 50 days after Passover. And Luke says that Jesus spends 40 days with his disciples. And so that is, leaves 10 days that he leaves them to wait. And 10 days is a long time to wait for something when you don't know it's gonna come. 
It's not that long if you knew it was gonna come. And, and this isn't the primary point of this passage, but I just feel compelled to say, um, it's important for us to see this about Jesus. He could have ascended on the morning of Pentecost and then sent the Spirit that afternoon. He could have told them instead of, hey, not many days from now, the Spirit's coming, he could say, it's coming on Pentecost. He could have told them when it was gonna come and it wouldn't have been that bad to wait those 10 days. He, he could have you know, told them as he ascends, as he's blessing his people and disciples, he yells down, it's coming on Pentecost. He could have done this, but he didn't. In his infinite wisdom, he didn't, and as a result, his disciples had to wait. They had to learn to trust. And I mention that because I believe, church, that God forms, he does deep, significant spiritual work in our hearts and our lives in seasons of waiting. Deep work in our heart when it comes to our relationship with him and when it comes to our relationship with others because it's been a few years since I've shared this, but, um, and some of you are gonna be surprised by this because all my sermon illustrations are just about my kids. Um, but uh, for the first four and a half years of our marriage, Mary Elizabeth and I struggled with infertility. And there were good things that happened over those years, of course, but um, they, they were far from awesome. And it was one of the most difficult seasons that I have walked through, we have walked through, um, maybe ever will be, just trying to figure it out, newly married, and trying to work through, like, how do I love my wife and be empathetic and compassionate for her and help her process through this while also processing, through the, processing the grief and the loss for me and just the potential of us never being able to be what we wanted to be so badly, parents. And we tried the treatments and we saw the doctors and for whatever reason, none of it worked. Four and a half years, we felt helpless. And now we had people around us, praise God, but it just felt like all we could do was just you know, look to God. And then one day, we found out that we were pregnant that God had answered our prayers, that he had heard our cries. And then, I'm not kidding you, three, maybe four days later, uh, we end up, she wakes me up in the middle of the night, panic, rush her to the emergency room, and then we're surrounded three or four in the morning by these doctors and nurses who say, we are almost certain that you are having a miscarriage. Um, and yet, we're gonna have to wait for a sonogram tech to come and confirm it. And I can't describe to you what that time was like. I feel like the bottom had just fallen out of our lives where you go, Lord, what are you doing? You know, um, all these years of waiting and then we find out we're pregnant and then here we are now, like just a couple days later, like God, what are you doing? And um, there we are in that waiting room three or four in the morning and my wife asked me if we could turn on some worship music and sing to God as we waited and there have been few times in my life where I have been more anxious, more scared, more afraid, like, few times in my life where I've felt those things and, and yet there have also been few times in my life where I felt that God was more near. And, and I, I'm, again, this isn't the primary point of this passage but I just feel compelled to take a few moments to encourage you, whoever you are, if you're in a season of waiting, whether you are in a season of waiting for something big or something small or something painful or something joyful, like whatever it is, if you're in a season of waiting, I want you to hear this, God has not forgotten you. He hasn't abandoned you. He is at work in your life, despite the fact that I know you're looking and you're going, I can't see it. He is at work in your life, and I want you to hear this. There will come a day where you will look back on this season that you're in right now, and you will say, oh, I see what God was doing there. Now, that day may not come until you go home to the Lord or he comes up back to us. But there is coming a day, because Revelation says that Jesus, he, 
sneaks up on you sometimes. Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more sin, no more death, no more mourning, no more pain, no more crying anymore for the former things have passed away. There's a day coming where God himself will restore to you, the Bible says, what the locusts have eaten. Look at verse one. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So as Luke describes this event, he says it happened suddenly. Like it wasn't a gradual buildup over those 10 days. It was just they were praying and everything was normal and then all of a sudden it wasn't. And Luke describes two things. He describes what they heard and he describes what they saw. And what they heard in verse two, it says, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Other translations of that word mighty would use the word violent. Okay, so yesterday it was windy here in Savannah to the point where even our power went out, all right? There were seven total homes. I know this because I have a friend who works at the power company. Seven homes in the city whose power was out. Mine was one of them, all right? (laughs) That's not the kind of wind that they were experiencing here. He says the sound of a mighty or violent rushing wind. And notice what the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say the sound of a mighty rushing wind. What's it say? Sound like a mighty rushing wind. Which means maybe it wasn't wind. That, that the best way they could think to describe this in human terms was just the sound of a mighty rushing wind. But what is clear to them is where the source of the sound came from. Look at verse two. Where does it come from? Heaven. And that's interesting because uh, Luke's used that word heaven a lot in, in Acts chapter one. He said, the angels say, that's where Jesus went. When he ascends, he goes, Jesus went to heaven. Why are you looking at heaven? He's gonna come from heaven the same way he went to heaven. He uses that word a lot. So the point there is that the source of this sound is from Jesus himself. And I love this, you think about Jesus' ministry. He goes up to Jerusalem on uh, Palm Sunday and he goes up on the cross and he comes up out of the tomb and he's ascended up to heaven and now he sends his spirit, what? Down to his people. Luke says it was sudden, it was unmistakable. This wasn't a, did you hear that? What's that noise? It wasn't one of those moments, it was unmistakable. All of a sudden the sound of a hurricane in the room. The question we have to answer is why? Why wind? Um, The answer is because Jesus wants his disciples to know for certain that this was the coming of his spirit. Uh, The word for spirit in both Greek and Hebrew is the same as the word for wind or breath. And all over the Old Testament, there's this evidence of when God's presence comes, it's accompanied by this great wind. You, You think about Genesis 1 and even the spirit being the active agent in creation as the, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You think about first, King, first Kings 19 where Elijah is in the cave and he has this encounter with the presence of God and the Bible literally says, First Kings 19, that this strong wind comes and it tears the mountains apart and the rocks, these massive boulders are falling because God's presence has showed up, evidenced by this wind. Ezekiel 1, before he gets his vision, what precedes that is this strong wind from the north. Again, Jesus wants his disciples to know that this is his spirit. So they hear what sounds like wind, and in verse three, they see something. They see what appears to be tongues of fire. And notice, it's not 
tongues of fire, it's tongues as of fire. Again, the best way they could explain what was happening was to describe it that way. And, And the question is the same as before, why fire? The answer is the same. Because fire is symbolic of God's presence in the Old Testament and Jesus wants his disciples to know for certain that this is the coming of his spirit. Think about Exodus three, God shows up to Moses, how? The burning bush. In Exodus 13, God leads his people out of slavery in Egypt into the wilderness through the Red Sea and and a, a cloud by day and what by night? Fire, this pillar of fire. Exodus 24, God gives the law. He meets with Moses and his presence on top of Mount Sinai is said to be a devouring or a consuming fire. Again, this event was unmistakable for the disciples. There was no deliberation. They weren't looking at this going, you think this is the spirit? No, they knew for certain. Look at verse four. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance. This is significant because the Bible doesn't just say that they saw one big fire. They saw fire that came, that divided and came to rest on each one of them and they were all filled with the spirit. Remember who's there, 120 of them. Uh, Not just the 12, the fire comes on. Not just the spiritual elites and the other 108 are just like, wow. Every single one of them are filled with the spirit. This divided fire comes back on them. You think about, back to verse eight, what Jesus says, you will receive power. So what the Pentecost event is showing us is that Jesus' disciples aren't just given power by this impersonal force. The gift they receive, the power they receive from God is actually God himself. It is the third person of the triune God of the universe. And while the events of Pentecost are unique and unrepeatable, I need you to hear me say that, the same way that Jesus doesn't need to die again, doesn't need to resurrect again, doesn't need to ascend again, the spirit doesn't need to come at Pentecost again. The, the events are unique and unrepeatable, but what's not unrepeatable is that God wants to fill his people with his spirit. John 14, I want you to see this. This is Jesus having an extended conversation before he dies on the cross, was arrested and ultimately crucified. He says this to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Notice that's a capital H, he's talking about the spirit. And he will be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither knows him, sees him or knows him. And he says, you know him for he dwells with you and he will be what? In you. So Jesus says to his disciples before he dies on the cross, the Spirit's here. It's not that the Spirit, his work originates at Pentecost. He's part of the Trinity. He has been, he always will be, okay? But he dwells with you, but Jesus says something different's gonna happen. He's now gonna come in you. Church, if you are a Christian, I mean, you've put your faith in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, that he is Lord, Savior, and King of your life, the Spirit has come to live in you. The third person of the triune God of the universe has come to live in us and in you. That's the point of this message, this passage. It's not the tongues. A demonstration of tongues like this does not happen anywhere else in the Bible. This was a singular phenomenon, an unrepeated event, but the filling of the Holy Spirit of God and his people is not. The point is the disciples of Jesus are empowered with God's spirit to bear witness about Jesus. And church, Acts 2 is showing us that we don't all need a tongue like this or some miraculous sign gift. We don't all need a tongue like this, but we all need this spirit. We all need the spirit of God. This is why Paul says in Romans 8 that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us. And yet how many of us live a version of the Christian life that 
is almost entirely absent of the Spirit, at least our perception of it is. Look again at verse four. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This gave them utterance, other translations of that are uh, as the Spirit enabled them. And I think that's better for us as we think about how does the Spirit of God work in our lives, he enabled them. This is what Jesus said the Spirit would be sent to do, that he comes to be our helper. That word helper that we read that's capitalized in reference to the Spirit is a Greek word uh, that means uh, to come alongside in comfort and support or advocacy. That the Spirit of God himself comes alongside, dwells in us, comes with us to help us and support us and be our advocate. Listen to this, John 15, this is further down in this conversation that Jesus has. He says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he says that he, the Spirit, will bear witness about me, Jesus. That's what he does. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So not only does this passage teach us that the Spirit of God has come in us, he's given to us by the Father and the Son to help us. The Spirit has come to help us. The question is, help us do what? And I would answer that by saying this, he's gonna help us get out of the driveway. He is going to help us to not be content with a version of the Christian life that just says, hey, how great are these seat warmers? And, and it, look at that TV. That the, without the Spirit of God, we're stuck, but with him we are a people who are commissioned to live a life of following Jesus that is not perfect because if it was, we wouldn't need a savior, but to live a life that is empowered, that to believe who Jesus is and what he's done, it actually counts for us and to live our lives testifying to Jesus of who he is and what he's done. To live a life that honestly says, who cares about these seats? Look where we're going. He wants to help us fulfill our purpose to be witnesses to Jesus. Again, this is why Jesus tells his disciples, you wait in Jerusalem you will receive power and you will be my witnesses because it is impossible to do what Jesus is calling us to do and be what he's calling us to be without the help of the Spirit. You and I cannot do this on our own. We can't. It's not just that we need the Spirit if we wanna be more efficient. It's not like the Spirit is like extra charged gas so we can go faster. No, it is the transmission. You're going nowhere without it. Apart from the help of the Spirit, you cannot, I cannot be the type of Christian or husband or father or pastor or neighbor or friend or on and on and on I could go without the help of the power of the Spirit of God. What happens is when we talk about the Spirit, we tend to get hyper-focused on the gifts of the Spirit. And we're gonna talk about those some because it's impossible to preach Acts without it. Um, but what we tend to do is we neglect the fruit of the Spirit. Where Paul in Galatians 5 says, you know what? it should be produced in your life if the spirit of God actually is in you and he is if you put your faith in him. Love and joy, peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, meaning this, you lay that list over your life and your relationships. And I'm not talking Sunday morning, I'm talking Monday afternoon. And Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, and you say, if I'm going to be who God's called me to do and be uh, in my parenting, I need the help of the spirit to be patient and if I'm gonna be who God's called me to do and be to my neighbor or this person who I work with who gets on my nerves, if I'm gonna be kind to them and gentle to them, if I'm gonna be self-controlled in my life and, and, and free from actually giving in to every little momentary impulse, I need the power of the Spirit of God to help me. Church, our posture should be one of continual dependence on our God. 
It's not like a parent with a kid. So like, uh, and I've only got eight years experience, so take this for what it's worth. But when you parent kids, they, when, at first, what do they do? Nothing is the answer. They lay there looking cute, that's it. You have to do everything for them, everything. Burp them, right? They're crying because they can't even burp on their own. You have to do everything for them. This is the 11 o'clock, okay, it goes wheels off. But they get a little bit older, and what do you do? You teach them how to do some things. And you go, this is how you put your shoes on. This is how you put your socks on, and you help them for the first while, but then eventually there comes a day where you say what? Go put your shoes on. Go brush your teeth. Go, that, that's ma- mature, wow, maturation in the human life. Uh, and I think that's what we want the Christian life to look like. That we wanna grow and mature, and we need, we need God a lot up, up top. But then as we get better, and as we grow, then we don't really need him that much anymore, except for the really big things in our life. And church, this passage is saying, that ain't how it goes. Now, we do and should grow and mature. But when we grow and mature, what we're growing and maturing is our ability to listen to the spirit and to say no to the flesh, to not gratify the desires of the flesh, but to walk according to the spirit because the the Christian life is one where we never outgrow our continued need for dependence on the help of God in our lives. Every moment of every day, we need him. Big moments and small moments, and he's with us. Look back at verse four. If you're wondering if this has been the longest sermon of the three, the answer is yes. Okay, we're gonna be fine. Look at verse four. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven and this sound, or sorry, at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language and they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So Luke says that evidently, the 120 weren't the only ones to hear this sound of this wind because a crowd gathers. And we know that the, it wasn't a crowd like this room, like a couple hundred. We're talking several thousand because at the end of chapter two, 3,000 people after Peter preaches put their faith and trust in Jesus as, as Lord and King. So there had to have been at least 3,000, probably several thousand more than that who gather and rush and they, they show up to see what's going on. And the question they ask in verse seven is interesting. They say, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Right, how is it that we hear them speaking in our own native language? So here's what's going on here. Galileans in the Bible are basically thought of as like the, the biggest rednecks ever. Okay, that's what was going on. Um, this would be like someone who, who calls into the Paul Feinbaum show. Let that set on you a little bit, okay? If you don't get that, this is deep Mississippi, deep Alabama. And I don't, if you're from there, praise God. I, I got a little bit of too. You heard it when I said all earlier. This just drags out. But, but this is what's happening. This would be like if you took one of those persons, people, um, <laughs> and you were to just drop them in Manhattan. As soon as they were to speak, people would look at them like, where are they from? That's, that's a Galilean in this culture, okay? Except for what the Bible just said is they, it's almost like they're speaking perfect Mandarin or Hindi or something like that. 
The Bible just said that the Spirit of God is enabling them to speak a language they didn't know previously. Now, the list here isn't insignificant. This is a gathering of people from all over the Roman Empire who had come for Pentecost. Luke describes the the key to understanding this passage is verse 11. It says, they heard them all declaring, telling in their own tongues, it says, the mighty works of God. The mighty works of God. Um, Other places in the scripture, you'll see this called the great things. This language refers to the miraculous acts of salvation. Uh, It's like what you see in Psalm 71. This will be on the screen. Psalm 71, verse 19, your righteousness, O God, it reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you. In the Old Testament, this is language of praise. In the Old Testament, as they would say these mighty works of God or the great things that God has done, they're thinking primarily back to the Exodus event of God redeeming and restoring his people out from underneath slavery in Egypt. But what's happening here in Acts 2 is that God is establishing this new covenant through Christ. So now the great things, the miraculous works of God that were being declared by these 120 disciples in all these different languages is the work that God of salvation that God was doing through Jesus, that he had accomplished through Jesus. Listen to this, John 16, same conversation from earlier. This is toward the end of it. Um, He's still talking about the Spirit. Now, how interesting is it that in this recorded conversation that Jesus has with his disciples before he dies on the cross, this is what I want you to know, he just keeps coming back to the Spirit. It's just evidence to his church. We can't do it without him. So let's quit trying. Verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he, the Spirit, will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, that is Jesus, For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let me tell you what this means. As the disciples were speaking these languages, they weren't just puppets, disconnected, being acted on by an outside force, okay? This language, the declaring or telling the mighty works of God means that they were worshiping. It means that the Spirit of God, we'll see in here in a second, does what he can do or only he can do, where he connects the dots where you go from a, a knowledge and an understanding about Jesus to a knowledge and understanding to what Jesus has done for you. That's the work of the Spirit, to, to take what you know about Jesus and put it in here that you believe it in such a capacity that it begins to change your life. The Spirit illuminated for them the work of Christ and, and empowered them to testify with their lives and their lips who he is and what he's done. So the Spirit comes to live in us. He's given to us by the Father and the Son to help us. And last thing, here's how. By declaring to us the transformational power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what the Spirit does. And think about Matthew chapter three. Right before Jesus begins his public ministry or as he begins it, rather, he's baptized. And as he does, the the Spirit descends on him and there's a voice from heaven. What's it say? It's God the Father. And he says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So what's happening there is that the spirit coming affirms Jesus' sonship, his identity, his belonging to God as a child, a true child. And we can hear that and go, yeah, but that's Jesus, of course. But listen to this. Paul in Romans 8 says it's true about us too. Romans 8, 16 says the spirit himself, capital S spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Is that not what we were just talking about? Where you can know the gospel, 
but the Spirit, capital S, the power of God that's in us, that's been given to us by the Father and the Son to help us, declares to us the transforming power of the gospel. So you go from saying, God is great, to, or God has done great things, to God has done great things for me. This counts for me. The, the truth of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished actually changes who I am, my identity, my purpose in this world. The forgiveness and identity and belonging that can only come from Jesus has been given to me by Christ. Remember I said earlier that even in seasons of waiting, we can trust that God is at work and he hasn't forgotten us. Let me show you one more thing. This won't take long. Back, chapter two, verse one. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So that may not seem like much, the day of Pentecost arrived, but it is. And, and here's why. The, the word arrived here, it, it literally means completely full. So it's the word that Luke uses in Luke chapter eight when Jesus calms the storm, you know, the boat's sinking and he, he uses this same word to say that the boat was completely full. Same word. So literally completely full, but in this context it means to be fulfilled or to have fully come. And that's interesting because here in Acts two there were thousands of people, thousands of Jews who had come to celebrate the Jewish festival of Pentecost uh, Hebrew, the Hebrew name for that would be the Feast of Weeks, Leviticus 23. For all of you this afternoon, you wanna go check that out. Um, the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of uh, First Fruits or First Harvest. And what it was, was it was kind of this mashup of Jewish Thanksgiving and Jewish St. Patrick's Day. And, and you think I'm kidding, we'll see this next week because when they start speaking in these other languages, the religious leaders are like, you guys must be drunk still from the night before, okay? So it's this mashup of giving God worship and praise for the, the first harvest. It also, Pentecost was also the, the, the celebration of God giving Israel the law through Moses on Mount Sinai. So that's what they would gather to celebrate at Pentecost. Remember, Pentecost means 50th. It represents 50 days after Passover. Here's why I'm telling you this. They had gathered to celebrate Passover about 50 days before, didn't they? And they, and they have the, what we call the Last Supper which is the Passover meal for them, and Jesus stands up in the middle of what they did every single time. He takes bread and he breaks it. He says, this is my body broken for you. And they're like, no, no, th this bread symbolizes the, the lamb. He goes, this is my blood shed for you. And what he was doing was he was reinterpreting Passover, honestly just pointing to the fact that Passover would be fulfilled in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. That all the Passovers before weren't insignificant, but they were a shadow of the greater reality that will be fulfilled as Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb, lays down his life for you and me. And Jesus says, that's who I am. Passover was fulfilled. You know what Luke's saying here at the beginning of Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost is fulfilled too. In the same way that Passover will be fulfilled, Pentecost would be fulfilled, and all Pentecost before, you celebrating God's provision and his faithfulness to you, and his trust or your trust in him that even though when it doesn't look like God is sustaining and he's providing and he's given and he's given us his law, all of those Pentecosts before are a shadow of something greater that God is faithful to provide for his people what we ultimately need. Not only has he given us his son, the perfect spotless lamb, he's given us his spirit. This is why Jesus says at the end of the Great Commission, behold, I am with you always. That's why he says you've had the spirit with you but now he's coming in you. Church, we have what we need. God hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't abandoned you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He's our advocate, our comfort, our help. Five minutes over time, here's the application. You ready? It'll be short and sweet. 
Paul says the same power that raised Christ from the dead is alive in us. Jesus has given us a new identity and a new purpose and I don't wanna spend my life in the driveway. And I hope you don't either. And so if that's us, if we wanna be the church, if we wanna be who God's called us to be and do what he's called us to be, we need the help of the spirit. You know where that starts? It starts with us recognizing we can't do it on our own. We just need to acknowledge our need for help. And you know what we do? We ask him to help us because he stands ready to give us his spirit. Again, he's our comforter, our advocate, our help. The spirit has come to live in us, given to us by the Father and the Son to help us by declaring to us the transforming power of the gospel, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for this church. Thank you for what you have done through us already. And God, we ask for more. We ask for more of your spirit, that we would believe, we'd be further convinced that your gospel counts for us, that you haven't just done great things, Lord. You have done great things for me, for us. Help us to believe it, God. We need your help. Would you compel us by the truth of the gospel to go and be the church? And God, would you do, like Ephesians 3 says, abundantly more than all we could ask or imagine? according to the power that is at work within us, your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and respond in song.